This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over the last 50 years or so. In each program, we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on these matters and how they've affected their life, their work and their business. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience, both from me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today, we will be talking to Joe Heffernan, a professional with a career stretching back over 25 years in the life sciences and technology manufacturing sectors in Ireland with a range of multinational corporations working on strategic procurement, organizational effectiveness and investment decisions for these international organizations working in highly regulated sectors. Additionally, Joe is a man who has a keen interest in and pays close attention to the affairs of the world and the major trends that shape the world of work, business and society. This is opposite at this specific moment in time because this program is being recorded right in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic here in Ireland at a time when we still do not know the full human and economic impact at home and abroad. And we will be touching on some of the current issues and likely future consequences related to that crisis in the interview. I'm delighted to have Joe join me on the line today from Cork. Welcome, Joe, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you, Patrick. Joe, you've had a professional career stretching back over 25 years, working in highly regulated sectors in manufacturing, implementing sourcing and supply chain strategies and so on on an international basis. So what has been your path from way back in the day, studying business studies in Limerick, all the way up to the position you occupy today? I've never had a career path. It's kind of funny because I just dedicated my time to whatever's working on at the moment and things evolved. So from a PAD perspective, um, you know, I started in shipping in Limerick. I worked for an import-export company, and we were basically, at the time, we were importing a product for the Money Point uh, power station, which was built in the early 80s. Uh, I then worked in uh, electronics uh, for a number of years and then moved into uh, life science and worked for a few companies in the life science areas. Um, one thing I learned, and the reason I can move from kind of a company and from industry, is that supply chain is principles are universal. It's kind of like finance. So if you understand supply chain and work in supply chain, they can be applied to pharmaceutical, to electronics, to food, etc. So very much um, with supply chain, you can, you can work in different areas. You know, probably for me, a big lesson, I think that has enabled my career as I, I have evolved up through the ranks and sideways and crossways and backways um, is the need for lifelong learning. Uh, what I've discovered is, you know, you cannot rest on your laurels. I mean, what you did 10 years ago is not really important today and nobody's interested in. So very much you kind of have to keep your learning up to date with current thinking. And you have to be sure that what you're offering to the market today is of value. So really, you know, there's no really been defined career path very much. It's been a, a kind of just followed my nose by doing the best I could with whatever I was assigned. Yeah, so I guess the supply chain is one of those functions in a business, no matter whether it's manufacturing or distribution, the logistic services. If you're moving or uh, dealing with tangible products, it's, it's a discipline that has an application right across the board. Absolutely. And the thing I've often learned is that I'm surprised by the... Um, a lot of companies are not aware of supply chain, are not aware that they're working within supply chains because they're focused on their own technical 
technical competencies mm-hmm. and often their struggle to figure out how the distribution channel works or where the demand comes from or you know why their demand keeps changing and they have always found it interesting that um, for something that because when you're a professional at it you kind of take for granted um, that others struggle with which obviously would be the case for me if it comes to you know, some other topics, but um, I think people have begun to realize the value of supply chain because you're corrected. The, the the principles of supply chain are universal. Yes, and I guess particularly at this time, people have become all too conscious of their supply chain, particularly if it's long and particularly if it's lean. Absolutely. And uh, what people don't realize as well or have to realize is that there is multiple layers to a supply chain. So, so if you have a secure supply from a supplier uh, in a secure geography, uh, one of their components may come from uh, an area with geopolitical risks. So often you can find that you can get bitten, but not by your supplier, but by your supplier, supplier, or your supplier, supplier, supplier. Mm-hmm. So yes, understanding the depth of your supply chain is is, is critical to uh, protect your, uh, your business. I guess one of the things that's happened over the last uh, 30, 40 years or so with the, with the rise of the supply chain and in international business is um, manufacturing has changed. So how how has manufacturing changed for you since you started uh, back in the day um, in terms of where, how, and by whom it is done? Yeah, I mean, probably a massive change I've noted is the um, the move away from local decision-making. I mean, what I remember is that, you know, if you were, for example, a plant director, you could make massive decisions about how the plant was run and what you procured for and who you hired, et cetera. And very much what's happened a lot lately is that you've joined up thinking so you don't end up with a suboptimized decision-making. So, I mean, what's very interesting as well would be when you look at areas like um, sub, sub subcontracting, procurement and so forth, that um, this is where global sourcing and so forth has come from, that very much people have been pooling their effort to basically get synergies. So one massive change, as I said, is the fact that uh, this move away from local decisions. Um, another massive change I've witnessed is the move to Lean Six Sigma. And you know, basically, it has helped people to solve problems better and basically has defined the need to focus on customer value. Um, it's surprising to say it today, but I do remember a time when Six Sigma was alien and you know, people were, you know, challenging why they would need it. And today people realize that, you know, you have to lean out your supply chain, you have to focus on customer value. And something that is taken for granted today was very much, um, you know, resisted or new 25 years ago. So that's another massive change. And probably the biggest change I've seen is um, automation. So, I mean, maybe 20, 25 years ago, uh, a robotic arm would have cost you millions, but now a robotic arm would cost you less than 100K. So, I mean, that has profound implications from a point of view of investment, from a point of view of labor, from a point of view of the geography of where you put your manufacturing and sourcing and so forth. And I assume that what we're seeing, have seen in automation, say, in the past 10, 15 years is only going to continue. And that will transform the, the global structure of supply chains. We referred to, you know, the, the rising tide of globalization in the, the intro to the to the program. Um, where do you anticipate this process of economic globalization is, is headed now? You know, we, we've seen in recent years a kind of a pushback uh, around the world, you know, including geopolitical tensions, pushback because of climate change and so on, rising nationalism, and now coronavirus. So w- w- what's your view? Where do you see this uh, economic globalization headed at this point in time? Well, you have to look probably at the um outsourcing, what what drives it. And originally, outsourcing was very much driven by cost reduction. 
It was very much chasing the margin and very much following uh, low cost areas. Um, obviously, the big fear with any aspect of outsourcing has to do with protecting your intellectual property. And also, if you outsource uh, activity, you know, you know, there's fixed cost aspects to it. So are you, are you covering your own internal overhead? So there's a lot of questions to ask before you outsource. So also with outsourcing, outsource, outsourcing doesn't come free as both the organizations must invest heavily in the relationship and build trust. So talking, looking at the future of supply chains with the evolution of um, automation and robotics, I think the dynamics of outsourcing is going to change significantly. I think it's no longer going to be about uh, lower costs and lower cost locations. And it's going to be more and more about uh, technical expertise and logistics because, you know, people are no longer sourcing out the uh, cheap stuff because that can be automated. What they're actually looking for is people who have technical expertise and logistical abilities that maybe reduce the carbon footprint that will uh, enable the success of the business. So very much it's a big move away from what it originally was around cost reduction and very much looking for partners in the um, in, in, in technical and logistical areas. Of course, we're recording this uh, interview in late March 2020. We're in the middle of the coronavirus crisis here in Ireland. So we still have no idea how long... Uh, the coronavirus epidemic is going to last or what the full f- effect of it's going to be on societies or, uh, or economies. But I think in broad terms, uh, people's notion of the possible has been radically changed by this, um, like nothing else has changed it in, in our lifetime. So it's going to lead to uh, big changes, I think, in the aftermath, whenever that is. And what's your own view? What do you what do you think? What kind of changes do you discern coming down the line? Well, I mean, as we face kind of global challenges with climate and pandemics, right? Uh, I think we do need global solutions. I mean, uh, we need global standards that are enforced consistently. You know, and to get that, you do need uh, people talk about being anti-globalization. I think globalization is the right way to go. Do we globalize uh, businesses the way we have? That's a question. But definitely, we have to globalize humanity from a point of view of dealing with issues that are shared issues, right? So what I kind of see going forward, I do see this possibly being the beginning of the end of the uh, populism movement that we've witnessed over the past few years, this idea of uh, the rejection of experts. I mean, for example, in the Irish case, you know, every evening you see Dr. Uh, Tony Houlihan on the line and you know, on TV. And in the US, you see um, Dr. Anthony Fuzzi. And very much what you see now is you see people beginning to bring in the experts and let the expert guide us through this very, very difficult situation. So I think this is... Um, going to have profound implications long term. I see it as the beginning of the end of populism, because I think people do realize that we do need um, expert guidance to help humanity work its way through the global challenges that we share, which will have profound implications, obviously, for the way we live, but also on supply chains. I think an interesting thing as well in that will be, I, one thing I would probably visualize after this is a complete rethinking about uh, GDP. Because, I mean, very much people talk about, you know, balancing the books and so forth and uh, success is measured by your GDP. And I think we're going to move to a situation where maybe we're going to be more talking about the quality of life and how do you measure the quality of life for everyone? Because at the end of the day, we're all connected. And um, I know we spoke about a book, The the Growth Delusion, with uh, David Pilling there recently. And I think what's going to come out of this will be will be profound because it will force us to think globally. It will force us to rethink economies. It will force us to rethink the quality of life and how we live. So 
uh, you know, to, to a huge degree, this is a thin end of a big wedge because this is not the end of pandemics and global issues. This is actually the beginning. Supply chain and logistics. One thing that I've been wondering lately is whether, you know, the key strategic operating paradigm, both for states and, and for corporates, is going to shift from one, the, the one from the past, which was all about inventory optimization and long and lean supply chains, and maybe a shift to one where security of supply is more important in, in shorter supply chains with more redundancy, more strategic inventory uh, along the supply chain, giving rise maybe to more and bigger warehouses, more materials, handling equipment, more automation. What's, what's your own view on this? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, I think what we're going to see is even way more profound than, 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 than what you, you've articulated there, right? Yep. I think with this move away from GDP to quality of life measures, I think we're going to begin to see the type of consumption we've witnessed in the past 30 years will most likely change as people are waking up to the shared global responsibility to manage the planet and its resources. And that cannot but impact on, 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 on how supply chains function. So, you know, ultimately, I see a greater focus on local supply chains for basic necessities like food and clothing. You know, for example, you look at the Zarda clothing company, which has a very good example of a local supply chain where they have small uh, enterprises that basically respond to uh, global trends and local demand and basically react. And I think we're heading into a situation where for definitely when it comes to local necessities, that how we go to reduce our footprint, and that will have implications for supply chains from a point of view of, of how they're organized. Um, there is an interesting book out there by uh, Thomas uh, Pilipon, and he, in his book, which is called The Great Reversal, he articulates about the European model of competition and competitive regulation and saying it's the way forward, because ultimately where we're heading to is smaller companies that create greater competition and are more effective at distributing wealth locally. And so if you start chunking down the big corporations through competition regulation, you enable local communities and make more, put more wealth into local communities and then local communities can evolve to basically manage supply chains for um, the you know, life basic requirements like food and clothing through a, a local uh, supply chain. So to answer your kind of question, I see smaller warehouses closer to the point of view, kind of like a little model when it comes to shopping, ones that reduce the carbon footprint, you know, that use demand systems to replenish quickly from local resources for things like bread, for, for, for things like bread and milk and uh, basic clothing. Obviously, bigger capital purchases like cars and, and you know, basically construction materials and so forth will always be uh, globalized because of competitive you know, competencies and efficiencies that go with um, kind of global sourcing. But they don't, they're not a significant contributor to global footprint. Ultimately, it's, it's the day-to-day it's the -day stuff. Yes. So I think, you're, I think you're heading for smaller warehousing distributed through the local community with a lot smaller companies in a more competitive environment. Okay, so it's quite a nuanced picture in reality. I think we've both spoken before about the importance of relationships and the successful functioning of supply chains, you know, relationships between colleagues with customers, suppliers and service providers, and also within corporate networks themselves. So how do you see this coming to the fore now in times of crisis like this? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've never seen a successful business 
without a human relationship built on trust and respect. And I think no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, I mean, human relationships built on trust and respect will always be the cornerstone of, of how to do business and how to make progress. Um, I mean, the current kind of experiment we're all having of working at home with no travel uh, appears to be working. But I think it appears to be working because we are working with people that we know. In a lot of cases, we're working on projects we've been working on for a while. So you you can see what people are doing, just basically leveraging the goodwill and trust that's been built up over the years. Um, how does remote working would work in your situation where you're dealing with people, say, from different cultures that you've never worked with before? So um, I, I, I personally think it's going to be very, very difficult to create new partnerships without face-to-face meetings. Now, what that means for global travel, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that the um, this idea of people wanting to meet face-to-face, it's very hard to see how that's going to be overcome. In, with technology. Yeah, the face-to-face meeting is so important to lay the foundation for relationships. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's only when you meet people you begin to understand where they're coming from, you understand the nuances of their culture and the nuances of their personality. And, you know, understanding that for, of an individual makes working with them an awful lot easier. And um, I think from from the perspective of relationship and functioning supply chains, I mean, it is down to human relationships ultimately. And it's very hard to see effective human relationships in the long term uh, without people knowing each other. If we focus on Ireland for a minute, you know, Ireland has benefited greatly from this kind of increasingly globalized economy over the last 30 years or more with FDI and multinational manufacturing. So in, in your opinion, where do you see Ireland's future success lying? What, what do you think our strategy should be as a country? Every country kind of has its unique selling point, right? I mean, um, obviously in Spain, it's the sun, maybe, right? In Germany, it's engineering. And Ireland's unique selling point has also has been basically a flexible English-speaking workforce in a tax-favorable environment. And that's paid a huge dividend over the years from a point of view of growing the economy um, since, since the 60s. So you could kind of say that the preparation that Le Mans started in, in, in the 1960s enabled the look of the, of, of the Irish with globalization in the 90s and so forth. So basically, the, you know, the, the pro-business environment, the um, investment in and encouragement of inward investment it has paid dividends. So where do we go from now? I mean, I think, I believe that the future of the Irish economy is more in our own hands than ever before. Because before we were kind of kind of inviting people in to build our economy and give us the economy and give us jobs. Um, I don't see that level of inward investment continuing um, because as we've seen in the past 50 years. Um, so what we've done in the past 50 years is not going to sustain us for the next 30 or 50 years. So basically, as Lamas did probably in the 60s and reimagined a future for Ireland, it's we're probably at a time when we do have to reimagine the, 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 the future for this country. Uh, I mean, I think ultimately, I mean, the cornerstone of a successful economy is basically intellectual property and developing intellectual property. And I think what Ireland needs to do, and to be fair, they, they're already doing it, and I think they need to focus more on it, is to continue the investment in education at all levels and continue the investment of R&D and celebrating success when it comes to, to, to R&D and entrepreneurial ventures. You know, I, I think what we need to focus on is we need to have an open, um, educated and diverse workforce in Ireland. I mean, we already are well on our way to having that because uh, we're in a very unique position to leverage our brain power to position Ireland as an economy built on innovation and entrepreneurs. 
I mean, I, I know probably in the Middle Ages, um, you know, you used to talk to Ireland basically saying we were a country of saints and scholars, you know, but it'd be nice probably in 2050 to say Ireland is a country of innovators and entrepreneurs, you know, from that perspective, because I think ultimately it's it's driving that development of intellectual property from a local base. And I say local base, I mean, people that are here and people that wish to join us um, is basically where we're going to build our future. It's interesting. You're almost thinking out loud and formulating a, a strategy for Ireland. And um, we touched on strategy earlier in the interview as you're involved extensively in strategy implementation. And it strikes me often in my work that there's a lot of confusion between the formulation strategy on the one hand and the implementation of strategy on the other in many businesses. So if you like, one is a kind of expansive and the other is a kind of a narrowing in, in process. And formulating strategy needs a kind of a different mindset and perspective. It involves maybe creating a vision of the future based on values, beliefs, and mission, and then kind of working back to the present to see what needs to change. So in that sense, it's more creative. It's more creative than a technical process. I think many businesses are probably um, good at, at planning and execution, but maybe not so good at um, formulating and being creative with their strategy and actually tend to confuse one with the other. So what's, what's your own view on this? And have you seen this dichotomy and confusion uh, manifest itself in business? I, I have. I've seen a lot over the years in it with strategies. And the problem with strategies is that it's, um, you know, it's easy to pull a strategy together, you know, and lots of, so I've often come across people, particularly graduates, who think they're very good at strategy, you know. Mm. And um, I, I think to me, what I've learned over the years, I think strategy is a way overused term. I think people think, you know, think it's all about strategy. Um, but I think more as companies and as individuals, you know, we need to define our mission and our values. Mm-hmm. You know, and these should be as fixed or solid. And ideally, if they're crafted correctly, they should be unchanging. And everything you do should be built on what's the vision, why do you exist, and you know, what are your values, what rules won't you break, and what, what rules will guide you. Obviously, when it comes to a company, it's things like, you know, being compliant with regulatory and tax, uh, respecting your employees. And there's more like we're innovative, uh, you know, we're in life science or we're in we're in engineering or whatever you believe are the core values of your company and whatever your vision is as to the reason why you exist. And I think getting this right is probably more important than strategy. And an awful lot of companies really do struggle with their mission and do struggle with their with their values because, they're deep, they're profound, and if they're done right, they will they will hold the company together for decades. Um, I think everything we do then ultimately must be measured against our mission and our values. And you could nearly say you could nearly have a scorecard that you know measures your your your, your progress against your mission and your values. And obviously, to support your mission and values, and once you're clear on them, I think the next phase would be identify what competencies are needed to support the, your mission and your strategies. So for example, if you're a finance company, obviously you need more, no, 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 more financial know-how, but you know, if you're an engineering company, you need more engineers, and let's put it very simplistically, but ultimately you need to know, if you know what your vision is, you basically start hiring the right people and you start developing competencies that enable your, your, your mission and support your values. Yeah. And building these competencies basically you know, attracts talented people to your organization, attracts the type of people that you want and will enable you to, you know, to basically achieve your mission. Now, along the way, you will have strategies. And the thing with strategies is strategies will come and go depending on the uh, circumstances you're 
you, you find yourself up against. Obviously, your mission and your values won't. So what I've kind of found over the years with strategies, like, you know, as I said, strategies must be rooted in your, your mission and your values, but they must be flexible. Your strategy must be flexible to basically meet with the evolution of circumstances. And to take you back to COVID-19, right? In some cases, you just dump your strategy overnight because you've a revolution has taken place and you have to do your completely rethink how you, what your strategy is, but your mission and your values don't change. So I think it's key that people, you know, I often feel there's too much focus on strategy and not enough focus on mission and values because in any situation we're currently in today, I can guarantee you there's an awful lot of companies out there and they are basically, they have, they have, they have kicked their strategy out the door and they're developing a new strategy. And if you don't have a foundation to build it on, you'll, you'll, you'll flounder. Coming into the final stretch of the uh, interview now, Joe, maybe we'll change uh, gears and maybe just focus a little bit on, on yourself. So outside of work, what kind of things do you like to do uh, in your free time in terms of hobbies and, and pastimes and so on? Uh, number one would be family and, you know, basically, um, you know, family connections and so forth is, for me, is probably their number one. I think from a personal perspective, I'm an avid cyclist. I really enjoy cycling. I cycle all over the the beautiful West Cork, as to say. I don't tell that to the locals, but it is it is a lovely part of the world. And uh, what I enjoy about that is number one, obviously, it's very physically healthy, but um, it's really good from a point of view of giving me time to think. I mean, spending hours on the bike, going around the byways and highways of West Cork. You know, you can you can mull over things, you can think about things, you can assess things. And I think whatever you do, creating kind of headspace to reflect and consider is um, is a very valuable um, experience thing to do for all of us. And, you know, I've basically created time on a bike for me to do that. So, I mean, very much that would be probably my key pastime because other than that, probably all my time is dedicated to my family. Lately, Joe, have you read anything uh, inspiring that you would recommend to listeners? For me... If there's one book that probably has influenced me more than any others has been The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, right? And simply put, with The Power of Now, basically, all we possess in life is this moment. So we must always be sure that we're dedicating our moments to doing things of value or things that we enjoy or things that are positive. So very much, you know, so the very much, I mean, focus on focus on today and kind of everything else takes care of itself if, if you do the right things today. So, I mean, it's a simple message, but it's a very hard message to take on board because it, it does re- force you to rethink about how you manage your time. Um, I find also I really enjoy audio um, books. I think, um, you know, driving driving to work basically has become um, an educational process for me. And I've, I've, I've gone through a lot of audio books in the past number of years. So it's kind of given me an opportunity to... To learn a lot, because obviously when you buy a physical book, it's great, but it often can be hard to get the time to sit away and read it. So um, audiobooks, for me anyway, have been um, an eye-opener, and I've got an awful lot of value from them. Uh, a book I'm currently listening to is a book by a guy called Teg, Max Tegmark, right? And his book is called Life at 3.0. Very much he's talking about harnessing the um, artificial intelligence for the betterment of mankind. And um, he, his core point is kind of interesting. He said the most important thing that we possess is basically our um, our awareness, you know, our conscience. That we're, you know, that we 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 very much as human beings are probably the only uh, living thing that actually have 
consciousness or have awareness that we can think and consider and so forth. And very much it's about, from an artificial intelligence perspective, it's about complement because if if awareness comes to artificial intelligence, will it be good awareness or bad awareness? Will they use it? Will they use it for us or against us and so forth? And um, very much, uh, this book is very much about how you harness artificial intelligence for the betterment of, of, of mankind. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, as always happens on this show, we're, uh, we're beaten by the clock. So thank you, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Uh, keep well. Keep safe and look after yourself and your family. Same to yourself, Patrick. Thank you for the time to have the chat. As, as, as It's as good as always. It's always nice to have conversations with you. You're always open to new ideas and considerations and challenges and problems. So, you know, you're always a good ally to have around. So thank you for the time. So thank you, Joe. Thanks also to our listeners. And remember that if you would like to find out more about globalization, international business, and how we can help you to formulate and implement business strategies that deliver, please check out my blog and website on albalogistics.com and my book International Supply Chain Relationships which can be purchased on Amazon and Google Books. This is Patrick Daly of Alba Consulting. Goodbye and keep well until next time.